Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Did you hear about the explosion at the cheese factory? Everywhere there was debris. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from writer and actor Julie Klausner. That'll help break the ice. Yes. You can catch her comedy series, Difficult People, on Hulu. Later in the show, we'll speak with author Salman Rushdie about sex, fatwa, and baseball. Par for the course. Yeah. Also coming up, pop star Carly Rae Jepsen provides a dinner party playlist. I sample Southeast Asia's favorite dessert, and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Alice Cooper is here. He's about to head out on tour, and he is going to answer your etiquette questions. Yes, and tell you all about Groucho Marx's bed. As one does. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in September. So cast your mind back to a time when only half of all newspaper articles were about Donald Trump. And when, Mm -hmm. as at any party, we started with small talk. We are joined by Lizzie O'Leary. She is the host of Marketplace Weekend. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? So as the owner of a lot of curly hair, I'm kind of fascinated by this story from Fast Company, which is about Blotox. Blotox. I'm going to let that sink in. Before I make a weird comment, I'm going to let you continue and explain. Is that windborne toxins? Is that what we're (laughs) talking about? This is about Botox injections that people, women in this story, uh, are getting into their hairlines essentially to stop themselves from sweating and preserve a paid-for blowout during exercise, people put time so and, and money into their hair and, you know. So they get an injection into their head so they don't sweat, so their hairstyle is maintained? Yeah, pretty is much. What, so this is the end of the world, basically. <laughs> I'm just picturing plastic dandruff. <laughs> no, I mean, it actually, I will say this story is kind of interesting because it goes into the economics behind it. Like, okay, maybe it's 1500 bucks in Botox, but they did the math. $2,800 over nine months if you're getting professional blowouts. So you would the Blowtox is actually cheaper to do this once in a while than to get blowouts to get every blowouts. time you go to the gym. That is interesting, but were, was anyone else surprised to know that Botox inhibits sweating? I didn't know I that. just thought Botox stopped wrinkles. It's been approved yeah. for underarm injections by the FDA for a long time. But then where does the sweat go? I think it comes out of your kneecaps. Do you, <laughs> you have maybe copious <laughs> amounts of tears when you get your monthly bill. Yeah, probably there. Yes, much more presentable to just cry it out. Uh, Lizzie O'Leary, thank you so much for the small talk. Anytime, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history is a swimming pool, but instead of chlorine, booze. Mm, unhealthy. First, the history part. This week, back in 1893, France gave the world a wonderful gift. And without even a hint of condescending attitude. Weird. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. 150 years or so before the digital camera, there was Bitumen of Judea. No, it wasn't a biblical character. It was a chemical slathered on a piece of metal. When you focused light on it through a lens, a lifelike image developed. A Frenchman named Joseph Niepp invented this early photographic process, but it had a couple of drawbacks. It made very faint images, and a single shot could take days to expose. Enter artist and chemist Louis Daguerre. Daguerre helped get the exposure time down to a mere 10 hours, and after Niepp died, 
Daguerre substituted bitumen for the vapor from iodine crystals. When applied to specially prepared copper plates and exposed to light, voila, you could shoot an image in just 10 minutes. Daguerreotyping became the first widely used photographic process ever. Still, it wasn't perfect. Even a 10-minute exposure meant anything moving basically disappeared from the shot. One early daguerreotype shows a French street, absent of humanity, except a guy getting his shoes shined. He'd stood still long enough to be photographed. It was the first candid shot. Daguerre struck a deal with the French government. Instead of patenting his process, he let France offer it to the world for free, in return for which he got a humble lifetime pension. Some early daguerreotypes now sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Evie Fanning. She's co-owner and bartender of Cheshire in Rochester, New York, home of the George Eastman House Museum of Photography and Film, which is itself home to the largest collection of daguerreotypes outside of France. Uh, so, Evie, you heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? It inspired us to make a drink called the Eclipse, because hmm. um, when I was reading about the daguerreotype, it turns out that system was the first one to be able to capture a proper image of the solar eclipse. Oh, wow. So so how do you capture that in beverage form? So in beverage form, we make something that looks very similar um, and is also really exciting to experience, I guess. So we're doing a take on a Negroni. And in this case, we're going to replace the ingredients with some French liqueurs okay. to commemorate Daguerre. Of course. Um, so we're going to do one ounce of G-Vine gin, right. one ounce of Dolan sweet vermouth, Dolan is French? Dolan is French, absolutely. It sounds Irish, but let's go with it. <laughs> and then for, for a bitter liqueur, we've got something called China China. One ounce of each one, really easy to remember, so you can still keep making them after you've had a few. <laughs> and we just stir all of that in a mixing glass over ice, strain it into a double fashion glass, and then for the showstopper piece, we finish it with a big circular ice cube. Oh, like the sun. So it Like looks... the sun. So we get this like really strong, awesome brown drink with this clear, sparkling sphere inside it. Oh, wow. So actually, it, it, I guess it would look at, like a negative of an eclipse. Kind exactly. Of. That, it actually sounds very cool, although I, I feel like this drink took more than 10 minutes for you to develop. <laughs> so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure it's in keeping with the theme of the daguerreotype in that regard. There may be some truth to that. However, the picture of the solar eclipse actually took 84 seconds to develop. Oh, yeah, because it's so bright, right? Because it's so bright, and that is exactly the number of seconds that it takes to make this cocktail. <laughs> I timed it just now. Uh, that's ideal for uh, your customers. And with a little bit of practice, it could take you 84 seconds to consume it. And then you go blind, just like looking at an eclipse. Exactly. Oh, the parallels keep going and going. So, Rico, listening to that, yeah. I was trying to imagine a world when 10 minutes was a quick exposure, yeah. right? Yeah, today it takes 10 minutes to take it, filter it, post it online, yeah. have it like embarrass someone who's supposed to be at work <laughs> instead of hanging out with you, taking pictures. Regret it, then take it down. Yep, 10 minutes. Also, by the way, that's about the time it will take to make, I guess, eight or nine of these cocktails. Everybody, mm, convenient. you'll find the recipe <laughs> online at dinnerpartydownload.org.
So great, you're mixing up a drink, you've got something to talk about, now we just need some music. And for that, we turn to Carly Rae Jepsen. In 2012, her mega-hit song, Call Me Maybe, was pretty much inescapable. Now she's out with her third album, Emotion. It's 80s pop-inspired, earworm-heavy, and the critics dig it. Here's Carly with the playlist. Hey, my name is Carly Rae Jepsen, and here's my dinner party soundtrack. Song number one I'm going to play for you is by Christine and the Queens. She is a French artist, and this song is called Tilted, and I feel like it's the perfect warm-up feel-good tune. I die waiting for she switches between half English, half French when she sings, but her lyrics are so potent that that's all you need to still understand what's going on. I am Canadian, so we did have to take French in school growing up, but I, I was not the best student, so I only ever learned how to excuse myself from class and go to the washroom. But but I actually, I, I later on in life, fell for a French boy, and that's when I really started to learn a little bit. My ideal hosting night is a big dinner with really great people cooking together. Back in the day, before I could actually afford to pay my band members, I used to um, bribe them with my homemade lasagna, and they showed up, and it, it definitely bonded me to them. <laughs> so I'm going to keep the mood sort of on the same train, because I feel like you don't want to jump around too much. This is um, a song by Solange called Losing You. Dev Hines actually wrote this song. Dev gets teased for having these very long introductions <laughs> before the vocal even comes in. But I think it's really something that doesn't get boring. It doesn't lose you. You're drawn in and it kind of is almost like this beautiful anticipation where you're waiting for it. I think that makes it even more magic. I went through many different processes of discovering collaborators and friends for this album and this song led me to Dev, so I feel very, very grateful for it. Probably because the production is just so jamming. You kind of forget that it is a really melancholy theme. It's not too in your face. You don't feel like you need to be raging or on a lot of drugs. You just feel like you can be outside with friends and living free and, and having a good a good chat. My third song that's going to be the transition song from dinner party to dance party is a song by Shrub called Doses and Mimosas. Don't get me started, love. I've had too much drink. This is a song that became our anthem when we were on the road. When this song starts to play on the tour bus, it doesn't matter who's sleeping, you dance your way out of that bunk and you come have a dance party with us. And that's how we go down the highway. <laughs> It's got constant hook after hook after hook. I've always been one for music where I can listen right away and I'll know if it's going to be something that is going to be a part of my life for the next month. 
And this was a song, I think my cousin Adam showed it to me. The first time I heard it, I was like, uh-oh, I have a new addiction. So if my brother was there, he gets very cute and proud, and he'll definitely try to play my own stuff, which is humiliating, <laughs> actually. But very sweet at the same time. So if my brother is there, he told me last night that his favorite song from the new album is a song um, called Black Heart. In your black heart is where you'll find me Cutting through the cracks of the concrete In your black heart is where you'll find me waiting It's a song about a Canadian guy who's dating. I felt like... He had been hurt in a big way before, and this was a fun way to kind of sing about it in a song of like, I'm going to get into that black heart of yours. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of Carly Rae Jepsen. She's on tour now. All right, coming up, we chat with author Salman Rushdie and then rock legend Alice Cooper. A man who stages his own electrocution for a living tells you how to behave. Listen closely when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in September. You're in luck if you didn't catch it the first time, because yep. in a few minutes, rock legend Alice Cooper, who's on tour right now, answers your etiquette questions. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and it's Salman Rushdie, widely considered one of the world's great writers. His blend of magic realism and historical fiction have garnered him the Booker Prize, a British knighthood, and for his novel, The Satanic Verses, a notorious fatwa that sent him into exile. Yes, talk to him about that last interview. Of course. He has a new book out. It's called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. In it, a huge storm strikes New York and strange things start to happen. A gardener's feet no longer touch the ground. A baby with the ability to sense corruption appears in the mayor's office. (laughs) And a fissure opens between Earth and the world of the djinn a group of mischievous creatures with supernatural powers that live in a different dimension. All right. Obviously, a world war ensues. So when I met with Rushdie, I asked him if he tried pitching this to Hollywood before writing the book. <laughs> you know, Hollywood has always turned me down. It's true. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't think, they, I don't think they've ever got it quite. Huh. So, yeah, I have to write my own disaster movies <laughs> nowadays. So how did you arrive at the frame of this book, this War of the Worlds? Well, it... It arrived gradually. I mean, initially, I wasn't sure that that was going to be the the actual shape of the book, you know. I had fragments of it. I had always the character of Mr. Geronimo, the gardener whose feet stopped touching the ground. Yes. And in the beginning, I thought it might just be a novel about him. And then I had in, in another part of the forest on my desk this story about this gin princess, you know, genie princess. Yes who comes to Earth and falls in love with a man, the philosopher, and and basically falls in love with the human race. And then it it just grew outwards from that. Before we go any further, we should probably point out to English majors in the audience that this book is called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, which Which, adds up to 1,001 (laughs) Nights, which is an alternate title to Arabian Nights, which is a book of of tales that come from Persia, ancient Persia, Middle East, and India as well. Mm -hmm. It's a book you've referenced in other novels of yours. What role did it play in this work? It's part of everything, really. I mean, because it's, it's really these wonder tales, as they're known, of which the Arabian Nights is the most famous compendium, but by no means the only one. If you grew up as I did in, in India, that's your first engagement with literature. 
You know, uh, I mean, you hear them originally as children's stories, although in fact they were not written as children's stories. Mm. Um, the point is that this, this wonderful storehouse of magic stories was the thing that made me fall in love with literature in the first place, mm. you know. And, and what happened to me is, you know, the, the last time we talked, we were talking about my nonfiction book, The Memoir. Yes. And when I finished writing that, I'd spent three years or so, you know, trying to tell the truth. And to tell you the truth, I got sick of the truth. You know, <laughs> I thought that's enough truth, you know. And, and emotionally, it made me swing to the other end of mm. the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And what is the most crazily imagined book I can come up with? And that took me back to the source, if you like, to the, to the stories that had made me first fall in love with stories. Yes. And think, do something like that. Do something like that. Only bring it to New York. Yeah. You know? but, but unless people think that you abandoned the truth, this mm. book is rich with uh, allusions to pop culture, yeah. Bob Dylan, uh, Lou Reed. I, you made a reference to Das Racist, which yes. is kind of an arty uh, uh -huh. former hip-hop group, hip -hop group yeah, here, yeah. here in uh, Brooklyn. I met, I met him, actually. I met um, DJ Heems. Yes. And he asked me for some advice, and so we had a couple of drinks, etc. So, yeah. Only a couple. Well done. You, you, you well, survived when unscathed. When I say a couple, <laughs> <laughs> I may not be exactly telling the truth. Yes. Um, That's kind of a roll of the dice to incorporate pop culture references. I've always done it, though. I've never made a a distinction mm. between high and low. You know, it just, I just have never done it. If you grow up in Bombay, Bombay is this interesting place. It's like if Hollywood was in New York, if you push the film industry into Manhattan, that's what, it, that's what Bombay is like. So you grow up with pop culture everywhere. Yes. You know, the movies are an obsession in India and the music that comes out of the movies is the pop music of India. And so y you can't think, oh, I'm only interested in, sure. in the classics. Yeah. You know, if you grow up in that city, the nature of your sensibility is, is mixed. So pop culture and fantasy aside, the real conflict at the heart of the story uh, is between two philosopher characters, one who believes in God and thinks people should conduct their life uh, in fear of God, hmm. and an Aristotelian philosopher who believes in reason. reason. And this, this battle kind of gets wrapped up into the jinn battle. And this resonates with what we see in the headlines today with ISIS and the role of religion and government in various places. I, I mean, you see, the thing is this. I think that if you're going to write fairy tales, you have to be actually writing about the real world. If you're going to write either historical fiction or futuristic fiction, yes. you have to be writing about the present. Otherwise, it's just whimsy and it therefore it has no affect. There's nothing to it. There's yes. nothing to it. And, or, it, or it's a children's story. You know, If you're going to write grown-up material, uh, using this kind of technique, then yes, the purpose has to be to say something about the world as the author sees it. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's fun. This book, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's quite playful and antic and, and lots of sex, lots of sex, <laughs> which for me, by the way, is really unusual. Yes, that's you true. You know, I mean, I the sex in my books has almost always been off stage. Very British. There, there's been uh, well, very Indian too, mm -hmm, where, mm -hmm. where you know you, that stuff gets cut out of movies. Yes, yes, <laughs> but. Um, but I used to feel quite awkward about direct, descript, full frontal. Yes, descript, <laughs> full, so full literary frontal. Yes, yeah, uh, sex, and there, there really isn't much of it in my books. So, this one will rectify that. All right. Well, if that's not an enticement to buy the book, I don't know what is. Uh, it is time for the two standard questions we ask our guests, and the first one is: What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Oh, I've got very bored with the F word. 
<laughs> the, fat, the, oh, yes. the, the five-letter yeah, F-word. Yes, your five-letter F-word, the fatwa. Yeah. The religious edict that sent you into hiding. Yeah, but I have to say that since the publication of the memoir... Joseph Anton, yes. Joseph Anton, which was all about that period of my yes. life, I, I'm getting asked that question less. Well, that's also a clever part of media jiu-jitsu, which is by giving them, saturating them with this kind yeah, of... Yeah, you want to know about this? <laughs> bullet points everything. about this, and here's, then, the, yeah. then they're looking here's for the next shiny object. Yeah. pages. The shiny object is no longer shiny. Exactly. <laughs> all right. The second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this could be um, a personal fact about you. You haven't shared in interviews, or it could just be an interesting fact about the world. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't have any interesting facts about the world today. <laughs> um, but me, I don't know. What can I tell you about me? That I'm a crazy Yankee fan. Oh, that's, I knew you were a big football, like a well, soccer fan. Yeah, but, that, you know, that's... You, I've oh. now, I mean, 16 years in New York, this, the interest in soccer is a little diminished. Um, but ever since I first came to New York in the early 70s, you know, I had friends who were avid supporters of different teams and who would take me yes. here and there. Don DeLillo took me to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> you know, and he's, I mean, he's wow. a boy from the Bronx, you know. Um, I mean, Paul Auster has always been a big Met fan, mm-hmm. you know. So I had people vying for my support, you know. Pretty literate group of jocks you hang out yeah, with. Yeah, I, I rejected the Mets, I'm sorry to say. You don't seem like a Yankees guy to me, though. The Yankees seem way too kind of rich and elitist for you. Well, I don't know about that. You know, there was an interesting thing a few years ago. The Times commissioned a piece of market research about the about the fan base. Yes. And, of course, you know, we know the conventional wisdom about the fan base, which is the Mets are the team of the people and the blue collar and the Yankees yeah. are rich, smart asses and should be hated. In fact, what it turned out in this survey, the profiles of the two fan bases were just about identical, hmm. except the Mets had slightly more college graduates. <laughs> Interesting. So by being a Yankee fan, you are more We're actually man of more, the people. More demotic. Yes. More a man of the people. Um, I'm not going to go online to call it the payroll difference between the Mets and the <laughs> no, no, Yankees Let's right not now. discuss that. <laughs> Salman Rushdie. His new book is Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Our conversation went on much longer than that. You can hear the whole thing at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And you might also hear outtakes from that interview on an upcoming edition of Speakeasy. That's our occasional podcast-only series where we share our favorite behind-the-scenes moments. Check out previous installments by subscribing to Dinner Party Download on iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasted. All right, and now... It's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is rock god Alice Cooper. In the (laughs) 1970s and 80s, Alice pioneered what came to be called shock rock, lacing his live shows with real pythons, fake electrocutions, and all manner of horror movie imagery. For the record, he did not kill a live chicken on stage, but the fact that everyone believed he did says something. (laughs) He still has time. It's early. Alice has since done perhaps the most shocking thing by becoming an upstanding restaurateur and golf maven while still rocking out. He's been opening for Motley Crue on their farewell tour, and he's got a new band, The Hollywood Vampires. They are named after Alice's crew of musician pals back in the 70s who drank together, often to excess. This new band features Johnny Depp, Aerosmith's Joe Perry, and a slew of guest musicians. Their album comes out next week, and Alice, it's great to have. 
have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All of our dead drunk friends, we call it. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Sadly so. It is sad. But so, so tell us a little bit about this crew of musicians you – I mean, most of these musicians hung around at the Rainbow Room, which was a storied bar on the Sunset Strip back in the 70s. It, well, in New York, it was Max's Kansas City. That was the place. Mm-hmm. And London, it was Tramps. And in Los Angeles, it was the Rainbow. And it was just sort of like a drinking club, you know. And it was all guys that just happened to be at the top of their game at the time. So every night we'd get there and there'd be Harry Nielsen, Keith Moon. Wow. Um, if John Lennon was in town, he would come with uh, Harry Nielsen. Yeah, the um, palace. Mickey Dolenz, Bernie Taupin, the same guys almost every night. Yeah. And then we, then we just kind of said, boy, everybody died. Why don't we do an album just kind of like to tip our hats? There's, there's probably several hours worth of stories that you could tell about this group, obviously. Maybe could you regale us with one great story that comes well, to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, we would get there a little bit early because everybody wanted to see what Keith Moon was going to wear that night, you know. <laughs> of course. Uh, one night he would show up as full-out Queen of England. Oh, my god. And gosh. I'm, not, I'm talking full-out. He was a maniac. All these guys lived well, hard, but uh, Keith Moon in particular was a maniac. I've what, heard. what would have been my craziest day would have been a Tuesday to him. <laughs> I, I, I always tell people, Everything you've heard about Alice Cooper, you you can believe maybe 40% of it. Everything you've ever heard about Keith Moon is true, and you've only heard 10% of it. (laughs) With all of his insanity, you had to look at him and go, this guy is still the best drummer in the world. And he was everybody's best friend. He'd come over and he would stay at, you know, Harry's house for like two weeks. And then he'd come over to my house for two weeks. My wife and I came home one time, and he's in the house, and he's dressed as a French maid. (laughs) And he's, he's like, oh, and I am so sorry. I have been dusting the house all day. And my wife is like, who is this guy? And I said, he's the greatest drummer in the world. Leave him alone. <laughs> no, but he was really dust. sweet. He was, he was the sweetest guy in the world. He really was. So, so this record's mainly covers of songs from you know, that original crew of Hollywood vampires with a couple of originals. When you set about making the album, what was the first song you knew you had to cover and why that song? Well, I think for John Lennon, we did Cold Turkey. Uh, only because mm-hmm. it was really appropriate too. He he had his problems with not just alcohol, but he had some drug problems too. Yes. And mm-hmm. he did go through cold turkey. And that song was just one of those songs that was kind of chilling. huge Beatles fan as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. So Paul McCartney plays on this album. John Lennon was one of the original Hollywood vampires. I have to put you on the spot here. Are you a Lennon or a McCartney guy? Well, I was, you know, one guy, John was the guy that that tried to always get me into politics. And I told him, I am not politically incorrect. I'm politically incoherent. (laughs) I hate (laughs) politics with every ounce. I said, politics and rock and roll don't belong together. And that was the argument right there, you know, because he Mm -hmm. believed Mm -hmm. that the voice of rock and roll was political. And I said, no, it's entertainment. But, I mean, his thing was arguing with Harry Nielsen because he had one Irishman and one Englishman. And they would, the more they drank, one would say black, one would say white, one would say de- Democrat, <laughs> yeah. one would say Republican. And then I was in the middle going, guys, guys, yeah. sit down. Let's just have a beer, for God's sake. <laughs> what, so does, you but, were like the CNN. They were like MSNBC and Fox. I was. I was, <laughs> I was the moderator between these two. And you share the same last name as Anderson Cooper, so that makes sense. Yeah, there you go. A. Cooper. Me and A. Cooper have a lot in... Wait a minute. No, we don't. 
<laughs> no. You wear less makeup, Alice. Yeah, well, sometimes. But as a less political guy, can we take that as saying that then you're more of a Paul McCartney guy? Yeah, McCartney was much more of a fun guy. I sent Paul McCartney one time. I went to his house in Scotland, and he had this. He was building this great big room that was a meditation room. It was a big round room. Hmm. And I just happened to have this gigantic round bed that Groucho Marx gave me, right? <laughs> and so I said, what? I have a gift for you, Paul. I sent this bed to him, and the, the note with it said, neither one of us had any luck with this bed. Good luck. <laughs> and so he says he still has it in the house. But wait, can we just take a step back, though? Are you saying that Paul McCartney has Groucho Marx's bed in his meditation room? Yeah. Who, who could get it next? Kanye? Like the yes. Yeah, like, somebody's going to get it. Yeah. I think it has to be Kanye. Whoever gets that bed in the end is going to really have a great keepsake. There's a lot of legends <laughs> going through that bed. Yeah. I read about this friendship you have with Groucho Marx. Talk about that. That sounds outrageous from the outside. Well, How Groucho, did you become friends with him? And... Groucho came to see one of our shows, and he mm-hmm. says, Alice is the last hope for vaudeville. And, of course. But, but, which was absolutely right. I mean, yeah. it was like a, the, probably the most correct description of our show because it, it was sort of a horror vaudeville kind of show. Mm-hmm. But he would bring George Burns, Jack Benny. Oh, my God. Uh, and then the next night, yeah, he would bring Mae West and Fred Astaire. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You know, they'd be standing in the sides of the stage. They wouldn't be on the front. So they didn't get blood on no, them. They, no, they, but, you know, George Burns would say, uh, Gracie and I played Toledo, uh, you know, 1923. We saw the guy do the guillotine like that. He didn't use a snake, but he used it, you know. Wow. And they were not in the least bit shocked by anything that I did. Were you aware that there was maybe this kind of tradition when you were assembling the show? Was that where you were well, after? I've always been a bit of a vaudevillain. The idea of us being a sideshow, I, I connected with those guys. In fact, yeah. there were bits that from Hell's a Poppin' and movies like that that I said, well, we should use that in the show. You know, Fred Astaire saw the dancing skeletons we had that disappeared and appeared, and he goes, that's great. He said, that's, we should have used that. <laughs> oh, man. You couldn't have had a better compliment than that for us. You know? And Jack, Benny, Jack Benny's going, Alice. Everything I pick up has got your picture on it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I understand Jack Benny being there because he was never over 35. So yeah. well, uh, that's, he was that's always it. a young man. But, you know, it's funny. Like Even May, even May West, though. May West, literally, we did a movie with May West called Sextet. It was Keith Moon and Ringo and myself. Oh, the yeah. worst movie of all time. But at one point, she'd say, why don't you come back to my trailer? Wow. And no. I said, well, because you're 89 and I don't know if you're a woman. <laughs> and she says, oh, I'm all woman. And regardless of her age, that's an honor to yeah. be hit on by oh, Mae well, West. That's amazing. But then I found out she hit on every single guy in the cast. <laughs> Good for her. So it wasn't, it wasn't singular at all. <laughs> I, I do, I'm going to make a tenuous, crazy connection here. Your given a middle name is Damon, right? Yeah. You were named after Damon Runyon. Right. And Damon Runyon wrote about, you know, The yeah. Guys and Dolls, the musical was based on Damon Runyon's stories. Absolutely. There was tons of guys and dolls in our shows. We, we used parts of that, parts of West Side Story. There was all those things that showed up in the Alice Cooper shows. And yet I remember in the 70s, you were seen as the end of culture. And yet you're like basically taking all of these aspects of beloved culture of the past. Oh, absolutely. Did that upset you at the time? It's kind of like, listen, you guys, I'm part of a tradition. Here. No, no, no. I mean, to just about every parent in America, we were indescribable. They didn't quite get the humor of it yet. You know, Mm. I was getting like Ann Landers was like all over me for a song called Cold Ethel, which was a song about necrophilia. Right. But it was funny. It was a funny song. And I and I finally wrote her back and I said, and 
if there's a rash of necrophilia going on because of this song, I will apologize. But I said, everybody's laughing except you. Alice Cooper, he launches a tour later this month. And folks, you may have noticed our etiquette guest didn't answer any etiquette questions just now. Stay calm. Alice will be back with behavior advice after a quick break. You'll also hear a track from the band Los Colones, and Rico will sample dessert stew Mm. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we'll hear a brand new tune from the band Los Colones, and in a few minutes, Rico tastes grass jelly which is not a euphemism for falling face first on a lawn, although he's done that. But right now, we've got some more talking to do with this week's etiquette expert, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Alice Cooper. That's right. Back in the 70s, he was known for pretending to be guillotined on stage, so we figure he's just the guy to tell our listeners how to behave. Alice, are you ready for their etiquette questions? Etiquette. I'm all over this. Yes. All right. All right. Here's something from Daniel in Boston. Daniel writes, when meeting a rock legend, what is the proper level of prostration? Were Wayne and Garth overdoing it when they met you in the movie Wayne's World? I have, uh, because of that, about 12 times a day, I get, we're not worthy, <laughs> we're not worthy, we're not worthy. And everybody's on their knees, and I have to do the whole thing with putting my ring out so they could kiss it and all that. Uh, I was stuck with that for years, and I told Mike Myers, he said it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. I could have given you a tagline that was a lot worse than that. <laughs> and so I, I, I've lived with we're not worthy for a while. So, yes, if you do feel like you're the only one that thought of that for the day, <laughs> go ahead, because I'll pretend yeah. like you were the only one, okay? Oh, that's kind of you. That is All nice right. of you. But what would be the appropriate level of prostration? I, I think your majesty is fine. I will respond to your majesty. Uh, no, I mean, you know, it, most people will come up and they'll say, Mr. Mr. Cooper, I said, it's Alice, okay? I try to make it so that I've never refused an autograph to anybody, and I've never refused taking a picture with anybody. Well, there you go, Danielle. Just to calm your majesty and treat him like a buddy. This next question comes from Emma in Seattle, and Emma asks, is it acceptable to apply makeup, such as eyeliner, in a public place, or is it better to apply makeup privately? <laughs> you know, it depends on how much you need it. I think that if you, you know, if you're really ugly, yeah, put it on as much as you can. Such a polite thing to say. You know, but, uh, you know, I don't have any problem with a girl putting makeup on over dinner. She's trying to look good for you, right? Although here is one question. I have seen this, you know, driving around L.A., you see a lot of people putting on makeup at the wheel of a car, like stopped at a traffic light. Is that acceptable? Yeah, Uh, I think so. As long as, you know, I mean, I'd rather see that than tweeting. Uh, Maybe the most egotistical thing on the planet. (laughs) I'm going to go to Starbucks again. Who cares if you're buying shoes? I don't care. All right, I'm with you You there, Alice and Uh, Emma. So go ahead and apply makeup. You can even apply it in the car. Sure. Just don't be driving near Rico. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And don't tweet at all. Uh, Here's something from Rob in California. Somewhere in California. It's a big place, but he's there. Rob asks, when is a python around one's neck too informal a fashion accessory? Well, it's never uh, too formal if you're me or an exotic dancer. <laughs> I see. <laughs> if so you're an exotic dancer and that's what you do, yeah, go ahead. And me, I'm, I'm kind of expected to have that, you know, at formal events. Uh, nice uh, Varvedos tuxedo and a python is... <laughs> Kind of looks no good. ascots for you, just the python. Yeah. No cummerbunds. Yeah, if it was Anderson Cooper, right, it wouldn't look right. <laughs> All right. This next question comes from Elias in Austin, Texas. Elias writes, if I'm at a restaurant and I get my meal first before the person I'm with, 
How long should I wait until it is appropriate to begin eating my meal before it gets cold?、Uh-huh. Is there a loophole where I can offer a bite and then begin eating, or should I just wait until their food arrives? This is good for you because, of course, you have a restaurant. First of all, you're from Elias, Texas, right? His name's Elias, and he's from Austin. Austin, Texas. Well, same thing. If you're from Texas, you just eat whenever you eat. You know, <laughs> you just shove it down. Yeah, I mean, come on. If you're sitting there, I never understood this. The food's coming. Everybody's waiting, and your food's getting cold. That's stupid. Eat the food、yeah. when it gets there. All、okay. right. Yeah. If it's a salad. Guys, you got, wait, sure. But if it's a steak, <laughs> you, you don't want a cold steak. Yeah, he's from Texas. There's no salad, so he should just eat. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the answer is eat it. It's going to be、right. meat, eat so eat it quickly. <laughs> yeah. Here's、uh, something from Jeff in Lake Ozark, Missouri. Jeff asks, "Oh, this is a golf question for you, Alice. You're known to、okay. be a golfer. Should you、yeah. allow a mulligan on the first tee?" Or count every shot. For those who don't know, that's kind of like allowing an, a, a second shot. I guess a free pass that doesn't count. Yeah. Should you allow a mulligan on the first tee or count every shot? There might be a wager on this one. Jeff says. Oh, if you're playing for money and you both agree that there can be a mulligan on the first tee, then that's great. Don't assume that you can just take a mulligan on the first tee.、Um, hmm. We play regular guy golf. So on the first tee, you hit until you're tired. <laughs> If you don't hit one down the middle, right? We all we play a game. The Cooper rule says everybody pars the first hole. Oh, you really? Oh. It's just given that you get a par. You get the par. Yeah. Okay.、All、and、right. nobody ever argues with that. Everybody loves that rule. But you know, if you're going to play somebody in a skins game or for money, then you have to play everything down. Or as, as Sean Connery always says, "Strict rules, Alice. Strict rules." <laughs> <laughs> Is that really?、Wow. Do, you, do you play a lot with Sean Connery? No, but when you do play, he always he wants strict rules. Okay. This next <laughs>、okay. question comes from Ashley in Los Angeles. <laughs> Alice, you tour a lot. What's the most appropriate attire for travel, especially since we all find ourselves in such close quarters on flights?、Ah. Uh, the best thing you can wear on a flight is deodorant. <laughs> not so much fashion. I mean, that's the most. That is honest. I don't care what you're wearing as long as、yeah. you're not on a five-hour flight and the person, you know, smells like 19-day-old Levi's. Yes.、Um, is that still happening on, to you? you? I'm imagining you travel first class a lot. There's people without deodorant up there. Oh yeah. Doesn't matter. They should actually give you when, when you get on a plane. I have a theory about this too. Also about skyjacking and all that. When you get on the plane, you get your diet coke, you get your peanuts, and you get a gun. <laughs> all right. That way, anybody pulls out a gun. There's 59 people pointing a gun at him, saying, "Yeah." I don't know. If so, that's the best policy. Well,、thing. well, you either arm everybody or or disarm everybody. But you got a whole bunch of people who don't know how to fire guns in a like pressurized tube. I don't know if that's a great idea. <laughs> and you're assuming that everyone's drinking Diet Coke. <laughs> well, I mean、exactly. that's not my experience on airplanes. Yes, <laughs> most of them should be. But、uh, what I'm saying is,、uh, there there should be a container of deodorant at every single seat. All right, there you go, Ashley. I think it's a, a deodorant and a gun. That's what that's the fashion <laughs>、yeah. on flights. <laughs> Here's something from Katie via Facebook. Katie writes, "What food is appropriate to pair with stage blood?" Very simple. Oh, wow! I imagine it's kind of sweet stage blood, right? So it, it is. It's actually sugar-based. When you see a、uh, black and white movie, you know, like Psycho or anything like that, stage blood was actually Hershey's chocolate because it has the same sort of viscosity weight. Yeah,、nice. and so it looked very good as as blood. So stage blood. What are you going to pair that with? Well, you know, sweet and sour. Yeah, you can go salt <laughs> with that too. You know,、mm, uh, a sweet、okay. and sour kind of thing. So like a margarita,、uh, maybe potato chips. Yeah, like pistachios, maybe <laughs> pistachios and stage blood. I think we have another product line for you, Alex. <laughs> <There> you <laughs> <laughs> It's a dip. <laughs> like hummus. You could totally sell that.、That's, Alice Cooper's、yeah. blood hummus. 
There you yeah, go. Blood Hummus. Good name for a band, too. You could have a whole Blood series hummus. of products called Blood Hummus. A, a, Blood Hummus. A Mideast shock rock band, Blood Hummus. <laughs> they can open for Hollywood vampires. I'm waiting. Um, speaking of, this is, this is a bit of an aside, but you're opening for Motley Crue right now. What is it like backstage? Oh, Are God. all you guys drinking Diet Coke and eating peanuts with guns, or what's happening back there? Everybody, everybody is actually fairly sober. I mean, I, I know I've been sober 33 years now. And when you think Motley Crue, uh, when they do this song, Girls, 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 yeah. I think now they're doing Wives, Wives, Wives. <laughs> Things are different yeah. now for the crew. Yeah, you know, it, it's two big shows. Both both shows are very production quality shows. Yeah. And so uh, it's a, lot, a ton of people backstage. And in the 70s, you know, there was this idea that backstage was naked girls running around and, and yeah, in the 70s, that's true. Now it's a bunch of fat guys moving amps around with yeah. spaghetti stains, you know, on their shirts. Wow. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wants backstage passes, and I go, that's, you're going to be really disappointed. Yeah, you sure? <laughs> yeah, you're like, have all the vapor rub you want. I mean, yeah. hey, listen, the drugs are still there. I mean, you know, Sinex, <laughs> uh, Advil, all the good stuff. Cedrin. All right, speaking, all right. speaking of all this. You got any Ben Gay? <laughs> yeah, sure. Nice. We're going to get <laughs> totally stoked on Ben Gay. Here's a, our last question, and it kind of speaks to this. We asked this of all of our etiquette guests. What is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, and where? Details, please. Well, if you went to dinner at Groucho Marx's house, oh, okay, yeah. mm. there was always like <laughs> nine or ten people there that you go, wow, you know, Marvin Hamlish would be at the piano. Yeah. Um, after dinner, you had to perform. If, if you were a singer, wow. you had to dance. If you were a dancer, you had to tell jokes. So the idea was to put people on the spot where they had to do something that they didn't know how to do. Oh, man. What did you do? Um, it was funny because I, I actually did a song with Groucho. We did uh, Lydia the Tattooed Lady. Yeah, what she's known for. Yeah, he did the first verse. I did the second verse. But no rock and roll. I couldn't do rock and roll. Now, if Groucho would have gotten up, he would have had to do, like, you know, Smoke on the Water or something. <laughs> ah, why was no one recording that? Oh, I yeah. know. Oh, Alice Cooper, we are out of time. Thank you for regaling us with these great stories and for telling our audience how to behave. Yes, and it's about time that you learned how to behave out there. People try to put us down Talking about my Just because we could get around Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Alice Cooper, now frontman of the new supergroup, The Hollywood Vampires. This is one of the many cover songs on their debut album. It's out next week. And folks, there's more etiquette advice where that came from. Every week we invite unlikely guests to come help you be polite. Just type out your problems in an email and send them to us. You'll find our address at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now... The main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, it's Labor Day week, summer's over, yep. and we managed not to do a story about weird ice cream flavors. I'm so proud of us for once, I know. finally. Not even when an outfit called Cool House created a pastrami ice cream and rye bread cookie sandwich. That's right. We resisted. But recently in the paper LA Weekly, I read an article by Jim Thurman about another cold dessert that is just too interesting to ignore. It's called uh. Gratin. I'm sorry, it's called Grass Jelly, and it's been available at various Asian eateries and stores around L.A. for a long time. Okay. But a place just opened in the San Gabriel Valley that specializes in the stuff. I met Jim there, and I asked, is it really made of grass? No grass whatsoever. It's made from the Chinese Masona plant. Its leaves and stems are dried and oxidized, much like tea, 
and then it's processed into a jelly. It's also called leaf jelly, which is a little more accurate. <laughs> yeah, that, let's go with that. Okay. Well, actually, let's not, because that's not what they call it here. Speaking of which, we are outside this place called Black Ball. This is, I understand, the, the flagship store of what's a pretty big chain in Asia, correct? Yes, it is. This is the first U.S. Uh, outlet, and they have, I think, over 100 outlets in uh, Southeast Asia. started in Taiwan and then to China and... Uh, it's a grass jelly dessert specialist. What is it? I mean, what, is, what does the substance look like? They, they boil it down and mix it with some potassium carbonate, then extract the oils and cool it and then cut it into gel. It's sort of a translucent black. So it's it's not the most appetizing looking in the world, but oh, so it's kind of like gelatin. So it's like like Jello. Yes, it's very much like Jello. But I've seen photos, and it looks kind of more like a syrup. So they then pulverize it or something. Uh, the syrup is added later, brown sugar syrup, to give it some sweetness. What is its flavor without the syrup added? It can be slightly tart. It's kind of like a it's it's in the mint family, so it's kind of tart with a little mint. And then when you add all of the sweetener, it becomes a sweet dessert. In Vietnam, you'll have it more in drinks mixed with coconut milk and the like. And Thailand has it and serves it with fruit. And how about Taiwan, which is where this chain hails from? What are we going to have when we go in here? What's the kind of classic? Uh, the classic would be to have it in a little cup, like you'd get frozen yogurt in, with the syrup has been added, and you'll get it with well, your choice. You can have beans, sweetened beans, mochi balls that are basically made from taro or sweet potato. Sweet potato covered with a, a grass jelly syrup. Yes, all mixed into the bowl there. All right, we'll figure out if that's a good thing or not. Let's go in and check this out. Okay. All right, so we're inside. I got the uh, taro balls and sweet potato balls, as you said. And this is very beautiful and also not at all what I thought it was going to look like. This is basically a huge ice cream cup. And I thought that it was going to be, you know, mainly the taro balls and the sweet potato balls, and there would be some grass jelly poured on top. Really, it's a big thing of grass jelly with those taro balls and boba and stuff floating in it. Really, the main course here is the grass jelly. That's what you're here for. Exactly. Grass jelly is, is what you're here for. And, Brendan, right about there is where my digital recorder randomly decided not to record the part where I Wait, actually what? tasted the grass <laughs> jelly. Oh, yeah. no. I'm sorry. Are you sure that's not the point where the owner kicked you out for not wearing pants? <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure. My pants were definitely on. All right. Things are getting but, better then. Listen, it was very delicious, that dessert, but very mm. sweet. Mm-hmm. Mainly what it tasted like was caramel because of the brown sugar syrup they used to sweeten the jelly. Okay. So it was like a tasty, cold, black, gelatinous syrup stew. Interesting. And in fact, my recorder thankfully started working again, just as Jim pointed out a few items on the menu, which proved... That stew analogy is not entirely off the mark. Uh, Yes, Taiwanese and Cantonese desserts are quite often warm desserts that are soups. Right here we have a uh, grass jelly soup that's served hot, and it's uh, shin sao. Oh, you're right. I also see there's an almond soup here and a black glutinous rice soup as well. Seem to have discontinued here. People are not so much into the glutinous rice as they are into the grass jelly. And I also noticed that on the tray with these desserts came a couple of little packages of coffee creamer. What Are we supposed to add that to this? If you'd like it sweeter still, yes. Do I want it sweeter still? I think not. I'm doing it anyway. Hold on a second. This is just, you know, one of those foil-topped little plastic cups of creamer. All right, I'm dumping it in here. I'm lactose intolerant, so I'm taking one for the team. Oh, actually, I really like that. Actually, it kind of mellows out the sweetness. I feel the, the creaminess kind of mellows it out a little. 
nonetheless. It is still pretty sweet, though. Well, believe it or not, it's considered to have healthy properties, lowering blood pressure, um, helping with diabetes. Really? Well, yeah, that's, that's in its less sweetened form. I would, I would think without the sugar, for God's sake. Yes. Nobody out there, eat this jello-like substance to cure your diabetes. I, I don't know if that'd be a good idea. Food writer Jim Thurman, his piece about grass jelly first appeared in the LA Weekly. And that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, folks. But don't be sad. The party continues all week long on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD, and you'll find past episodes plus online only bonus ones yeah. by subscribing to our podcast via iTunes. Do that. Jackson Musker produced this week's show. Nina Patox, our associate producer, and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Daniel Ramirez engineered. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. And now, before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's parties. Los Colones are a six-piece blues band from Nashville with a soft spot for Dire Straits. Don't take our word for it. Take a listen to Golden Dragon Hut off their album Dos. Bon appétit. Welcome to the Golden Dragon Hut Can I take your order please I got another couple hours before they make a cut I'm trying to make ends meet Living from one piece of paper to the next Taking it day to day I'm waiting on you, you're waiting for me And patience is a virtue that pays Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Tune in next week for my once-in-a-lifetime interview with Vladimir Putin and Rihanna. Here's a taste. Dude. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. You need a new recorder. I know.